Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following podcast contains explicit language. Friday, March 10th, 2017, from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Let's check in with Japan six years after the Fukushima meltdown. Who's wandering around that prefecture? Hundreds of radioactive wild boars moved into deserted towns after the nuclear crisis. Now they scour the empty streets and overgrown backyards of Namie town for food. Radioactive wild boars. And you thought Nippon Ham Fighters was a weird name for a baseball team. Yeah, towns near the Fukushima reactor have been overrun by radioactive wild boars. It's a weird phrase that actually gets a little better with each word. Radioactive, uh, wild, uh, boars. Although, if I had to change just one word, the last word I change is the wild. I mean, if they were radioactive domestic boars, that really helped the situation, then they'd be reliant on radioactive handlers and radioactive trainers for their food needs. They do pair well with a certain type of radish. An unexpected nuisance for those trying to return home six years after the meltdown. Maybe not nuisance, maybe a fairly accurate harbinger, actually a useful warning sign. Oh yeah, we went with the red exclamation mark and the triangle, people still wandered in, then we tried the skull and crossbones, didn't work, it was strong iconography and yet didn't do the job. Then we realized nothing says keep out like the presence of radioactive wild boars. Now, I know people are desperate to return home, but... The average radiation level is still well above Japan's goal. Homes are still damaged or abandoned, and the streets are littered with bags of radioactive waste. And not only those bags, also the boars. The radioactive wild boars. I know the manga version of said boars are pretty cuddly, but in real life, not as hospitable as the phrase radioactive wild boars might imply. On the show today, I spiel about the job figures, and if you could trust them, hint, people are saying you can. They're terrific. People are saying more than terrific, as high as beautiful. But first, CBS is undertaking a project that will do more than poll Americans. It will define a distinct group, stick with them, and try to puzzle out who they are and what they think. The man behind this tracking of the nation's mood, this nation tracker, if you will, is Anthony Salvanto. If there is one mental vice which sets off the American people from all other folks who walk the earth, it is that of assuming that every human act must either be right or wrong, And that 99% of them are wrong. That was said by H.L. Mencken, who in doing so identified himself as a historian, a sociologist, but also a pollster with that 99% figure. Anthony Salvanto 
is all of those things as the CBS News elections director, which I guess, Anthony, means if CBS News ran for office, you'd be in charge of concocting the slogan. <laughs> I might not be any what good What would at your that. slogan be? <laughs> I know. I got one. We got Dickerson. That's all you need. <laughs> uh, so what it really means is you handle polling for the network and information and all the uh, empirical data? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things we do is when you so when you tune in on election night and you say, oh, you know, there's just 2% of precincts reporting, but we're projecting the race. Um, that's me in my desk. And yes, we do a lot of polling. Uh, we're, we did the battleground tracker all of uh, all through last year. We've got the nation tracker now. So it's it's about getting out there and talking to people. And then it's about crunching the numbers and figuring out uh, who wins. So, so CBS and you make the call. Um, was the lesson, by the way, is the lesson of till 2000 still being felt in the network newsrooms? No, I, I don't think so. You know, I think what we've got now, at least I wasn't there then, but w- what we do have now is a lot of quality control. Um, we haven't made any incorrect projections in, right. the, in the time since. And and so what, what you do see now, though, is trying to explain things as they're happening in real time and not get, just getting away from not who wins and who loses. You want to watch things unfold and you want to understand and why they're happening. Um, I mean, we all, we'll all know who wins sooner rather than, you know, rather yeah. than later anyway. So that's election day and that's so much fun and that's your most pressure filled day. Yeah. But what about the polling before, after? I'm thinking about there are still uh, the Gallup approval poll and all different approval polls. And I was reading maybe maybe Trump's reached his ceiling. I take the approval polls two years or a year and eight months before the next election with a huge grain of salt. Not that they won't be predictive, but I don't even know how much they matter. You have to read the approval ratings now and in recent years with with a lot of context. So, you know, everybody wants to compare Trump now to presidents in the past. And okay, well and good. But we are in such a partisan era now that the partisans on the other side of the president, this was true of President Obama, it's now true of President Trump, are overwhelmingly not willing to give an, uh, a high approval or a and just approval at all to a president of the opposite party. And so we have seen in recent years that contextually, you're going to get sort of mid-range approvals now yeah. just because the other side will almost reflexively say they don't approve. So if you go back to Presidents Reagan, even Presidents Clinton, and oftentimes they, you know, they'd get 20, 30 percent of the other side saying, yeah, he's doing a good, you know, decent job. And now we're looking at single digits for that from the other side. You have to put that context in and then you have to say, okay, well, then what's the challenge for the president in trying to reach out a little bit and kind of change that dynamic? But that's the era we're in. And so if the polling, let's say that it's entirely accurate and they can't be because the polls even disagree and Gallup's way off from Ipsos, for instance. But let's say the polling is accurate. I guess a president, any politician could look at it and say, all right, this gives me uh, a weather vane into the national mood. But I think how most people look at it is what are my chances in the next election, which brings me to you can get a Republican saying I hate him, Democrat saying I love him, but that doesn't touch turnout. It's a lot different for a pollster to call someone and say, hey, do you approve? This is easy. Yes. Versus going to with the polls and actually voting. And I think we saw one of the lessons of the last election is turnout matters just as much as well, almost as much as approval and disapproval. Oh, absolutely. Look, there's no turnout on an approval rating yeah. right now, right? Anytime you see a poll number, you should put a three or four point swing around 
around that. When people talk about accuracy, you've got to at least think of it as a range, if mm-hmm. not you know, a very specific number. But you're right about turnout. And that is a big, big reminder out of 2016 that we had a lot of folks who had been habitual voters and they in the polls, they were saying, yeah, I'm coming out. Yeah, I'm coming out. And this is particularly true on the Democratic side. And then they don't. And ultimately, especially in some of these, you know, these Midwestern and, and East Coast states where it is a, you know, it's a game time decision. It is a single day. Yeah, decision. meaning no early voting in about 22 states, most of them in the East. Yeah, no early voting. So yeah. you've got people who've got to either show up that day or they don't. And that introduces a whole bunch of uncertainty into it as well. So one of the things you guys are doing at CBS is you have a, a panel, a permanent panel that you're going to keep going back to the same people. Yeah, so that's our nation tracker. Methodologically, what what we're doing is we've got a larger than usual sample and we're going to re-interview folks. We have it balanced so that it reflects the number of people who voted for Trump and who voted for Clinton and who didn't vote in the last election uh, so that all voices are for sure you know, taken into account here. And then we're going to track them, but we're asking, at least at the start, what is it that you want from this administration? Mm-hmm. What is it that you want from the nation? And what we're trying to get is when we ask people those questions, it's going to be reacting to uh, what you're seeing and whether it's whether it's meeting your needs. Because at the end of the day, one of the things we were reminded last time was that people measure not necessarily what Washington is doing back and forth on particulars of policy, but okay, does it make my life better or not? Period. Sure, of course. You know? Yeah. So a couple of things. One, how many people are in this panel? Oh, there's over 2,000. 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. So from a pollster's perspective, that's big for a poll. You could do a great national poll with fewer than 2,000 people, right? Oh, it is. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're, you're, I hesitate to say it's typical, but your typical national poll, um, you might get around 1,000. Yeah. And uh, if people listening are saying, well, why isn't 2,000 better? It's like there's diminishing returns. It might get like 0.5% better. Just a pollster would tell you the difference between 1,000 and 2,000 oh, if you balance it right. That is correct. Uh, from a margin of error standpoint, um, diminishing returns is exactly right. But the the idea here, though, is to be able to dive into the subgroups better. Yep. And so what we're trying to do is we've identified people who we call the believers. And they're the ones who are with the president and they have been and they started with him in the primaries and they like everything he's doing. Right. But if I break out those those believers and they're just under a quarter of the population right now, I want a sample size that lets me then explore them with with confidence so I can yep. talk about them. And so when you get a larger sample, you can do things like that. And that's that's something that's true of of any poll. There's a lot of people just like you, whoever you are and whatever you agree with, in a broad sense, i.e., if you voted for, for Donald Trump, there's millions of people like you. If you voted for Hillary Clinton, there's millions of people like you. We can get that. But you get down and you start parsing into these smaller subgroups. Yes. Now you need a larger sample size. Yes. Over 65 Latino women with a college degree. Something like that. <laughs> exactly. So does this mean that your nation tracker will not have to do waiting? So no one counts for twice as many of their demographic to make up for the fact that they're under represented, which some other kind of panel polls have to do. Oh, they're still waiting. You, okay. you will not find a poll anywhere that does not have to do some sort of waiting. So who's who's Superman in the poll? Who's counting as three? <laughs> well, what kind of demographic is counting as three or four people? Well, there aren't any that are extreme. Okay. And you've heard tales of some polls that have to be rather extreme yeah. in their waiting. And so by- what you're saying is you didn't get the black guy from Indiana who liked <laughs> Trump in the LA Times poll, which was a real thing. They- this one guy counted 
quite a bit. Right. Well, look, I mean, folks should folks should remember what happens is any person who's in a poll has to sort of represent, has mm-hmm. to represent a lot of other people who are like them on some qualities. And it, you're right. You may be, you know, race, white or black. It may be how much uh, you, what your income is or your region. Those are all good examples. But how much do you represent? Well, somebody who's easier to find and somebody who takes the poll a lot might be might get a smaller weight because there's just more of them in the poll. But if you come upon a smaller subgroup of folks who are harder to reach, well, they'll be included in the poll, you can rest assured. But if there aren't quite as many of them as we know there are in the population, then they get a slightly larger weight. And that's what we mean by weighting. Are ethnic minorities the ones that are harder to weight? I mean, I'm sure there are a number of factors, but are are they given more weight? The, the The larger issue for polling now, in my mind, is just overall what we call socioeconomic status, right? So people who are uh, not as uh, they, they often have less time to take a poll, so they can be harder to reach. Poorer uh, people, you're saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it could be people of lower income uh, who might be working. You know, they might be working three jobs and they don't have time to sit and take a poll. However, it is we administer it. Mm-hmm. And older people who have more time. I'm, I'm sort of leaning on time here, but it's right. just one example. Yeah. You know, older people have more time and often can be overrepresented. Um, without waiting in a poll, yeah, because you know they have time to take it. Okay, even though turnout for senior citizens is really high, but even given all that, same the older si- we get, the more likely you are to vote, but the very much more right. likely you are to answer a pollster's question. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, and, and look, there's other factors in here too. I mean, younger people can be harder to reach. Again, they, it's time or even distraction. They've got other things on their minds, and you know they're out there, you know, uh, doing a living yeah. living life. They're already taking BuzzFeed polls left or right. <laughs> well, this is different than that. I mean, this is, <laughs> this, is, this, this is different. It's not self-selected. You can't yeah. just decide, you know, I want in and come yeah. in. You, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're, yeah. you're chosen. It's a representative yeah. sample. And, and the final and the final result of your poll will not be, oh, I'm such a Jessa. Oh, I'm such a <laughs> well, Hannah. Hannah. Uh, those, those can be fun, too. Those, those, I have to think of some that, that I have, you know, better, maybe maybe more fun uh, categories. Yeah. Uh, for that. You know, which, so uh, will your nation tracker, the group of people, will we see them on air in... In, in focus type groups and segments with regular voters? We might. I talked about one of those uh, one of those groups, the believers. But the ones that are really interesting too are these two groups that are sort of straddling the line on approval. We call them the curious and the conditional. Mm-hmm. And these are folks who could go either way on the president right now. They have one thing in common and that they say it's all about the economy. If you look at the people who decided late, who made those polls move late in the game in 2016, it was about change and it was about giving now President Trump a chance because they felt like the economy simply wasn't working for them. Um, Watching how they evaluate whether things get economically better for them, I think is going to be the key thing going forward. What's the difference between curious and conditional? Uh, well, for starters, whether they approve right now, okay. the conditional are saying I'm with the president and he's got to deliver on the economy for me. And then the, the curious are the ones who aren't with him and are waiting to see the reason they're on the other side of the line at the moment, though, this is the big difference is that they say they don't feel the president is reaching out to them and they don't feel that he respects people of different views. That's the difference. So I think how much, the, how much of each are in the electorate? Uh, there's about a quarter each. 
There's about a quarter each. And, and so what Really? That, the electorate's a quarter hate him, a quarter love him, a quarter didn't vote for him but could, a quarter did vote for him but maybe wouldn't. Yeah, there's wow. there's uh yeah, there, there's three in ten who we call the resistors. That's yeah. that fourth group. Um so it doesn't it, it, I'm using rough okay. numbers, yeah. but it'll add up. Are the know. conditionals, the curious, are they from similar age, demographic, income? Cohorts. The the conditionals who are with him are more like the types of folks who did vote for the president. They have less college degrees. Um, they're a little bit older. The curious are a little bit younger, have a little bit higher uh, college uh, educational attainment, but they're distant in part because they also live in places or tend to live in places um, that the president did not win. I've read polling that has pointed to the fact that if you look at people who are pro-Trump but not in the true believer camp, you call them conditionals, other polling call them something like somewhat positive. There are virtues that they list. All people of uh, all public figures have certain virtues. Like Trump doesn't do well on is kind to others, right? They don't care about that. People have voted for him and they know he's not kind to others. But there are some things that they really hold him to account. And one of those things is keeps his word. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other areas that could really trip the president up because it's very important to his conditional voter? I'm so glad you raised that. One of the things in that list of what could knock you away from him um, is if he acts like a typical politician. (laughs) Now, I I think I have to explore this more. What does that mean, typical politician? And I I don't fully know the answer to that yet. But to one person, it could mean mealy mouthed. And to the other person, it could mean, you know, not getting in Twitter fights. (laughs) Well, exactly. Oh, and and people have all, we did ask about the the Twitter fights. And even people who support him uh, think, well, maybe a little too much on, on the Twitter. A lot of times people get frustrated about the deal making and the back and forth that they see going on in Washington. They don't feel like that's getting things done, even though that, you know, we know you take a civics class and you know all that stuff has to happen. But hey, you know, people are, a lot of people are hurting. They just yeah. want something now. They want a result. Um, so I don't know if cutting deals would affect that. Um, but it, it does, it, whatever, however they define acting like a typical politician. One of the things that always sort of bolstered President Trump through the primaries was this idea that he wasn't beholden to money, to special interest. I can't reinforce enough how powerful that was. And even the people who don't like his campaign promises, a lot of them acknowledge, yep, that's what he said he'd do. And there's a lot of political science that says keeping your campaign promises is really important. People (laughs) do hold you to account for that. It is. Uh, And it's it's a sort that's the sort of direct connection. Uh, And let's face it, has been frustrating for people with a lot of political discourse. That's one that's one of the the criteria on which uh, on which this president will clearly be judged. Anthony Salvanto is the CBS News elections director. He is uh, he is manning the nation tracker. The show will be the nation tracker tracker because I'm very interested in this thing. Good to meet you. Good to talk to you, Anthony. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And now the spiel. The job numbers are in, and the job numbers are good. 235,000 jobs added, which means 4.7% unemployment. Now that includes saying that they're good. That includes a bit of a judgment, but also strong elements of what was once known as facts. We had a thing in this country. It was called facts. Sometimes included statistics. An empirical number 
to attach to a government policy, which can be a useful piece of information. Unless, I guess, apparently, it's a CBO score, which is just some sort of made-up fanfic from what I'm hearing. So 4.7%. The White House loves those numbers. Trump proudly tweeted them. However, let's recall that Donald Trump used to talk about these numbers, the same measure, the official unemployment statistic, very differently. The official unemployment numbers back when he was running for president and some other guy was in the White House. Well, Trump sounded like this. I am going to be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. Remember that. Okay, that's theology. That's not numbers. Well, maybe it is numbers. Matthew 3.14. And the Lord saith unto them, drinketh of my cup, sippeth big league, and the least among you shall find work with the beast of the field, and the greatest among you shall share my cup, beareth my name as my son, and you shall strike deals in Gomorrah, Judea, and Baku. This is the word of your God. Believe me. All right, here's what Donald Trump actually did say after saying he'd be God's jobs president. Don't believe those phony numbers when you hear 4.9 and 5% unemployment. The number's probably 28, 29, as high as 35. In fact, I even heard recently 42%. Do you think we'd have gatherings like this if we, were, we had if we had 5% unemployment. Do you really think we'd have these gatherings? Hmm. So the only reason Trump is striking a resonant note and drawing crowds anywhere is that there can be no way unemployment is really as low as 5%. It's probably closer to, I don't know, 42%. Those are two numbers in a row, right? Four, can we go higher than that? 60? It's like the mountain climber game with prices, right? 28. All right, let's say 42. And a new car built at a Ford plant in America. But now he's saying the actual unemployment number actually is 4.7%. He's embraced that number. So if you take these two statistics and his two statements over a year apart, he's brought unemployment down 35% in two months. But now that unemployment is under 5%, he's not going to be able to draw the crowds and strike that chord, right? He's uh, he's probably in a position where, yeah, he could shoot a guy on Fifth Avenue, but he might get charged with criminal menacing. All right, let's turn to Sean Spicer for clarity, as one does. There are many moods of Spicer. Sometimes Spicer yells at you. Sometimes Spicer babbles at you. Sometimes Spicer pokes you with a podium. Uh, that's a Melissa McCarthy version. But the lamest thing he and members of the White House staff do is say, yeah, you're going to have to ask the president about that one. I will let the president speak for himself. I'm, I'm going to leave that up to the president himself. That's a question that I think you should ask the president. I mean, it's not like I speak for him. What am I, a spokesman? But when asked about the job numbers, Spicer didn't use that job. Direct quote. Yeah, I, I talked to the president prior to this, uh, and he said to quote him very clearly, they may have been phony in the past, but it's very real now. <laughs> I have no commentary. I just have a sound. It's like a girl. Ha ha ha! That's what gets me the most. Ha ha! 
Maybe it was uh, actual White House employee toadies who were laughing or the in the bag press that the current White House is warmly invited to press briefings. Ha 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 hoo hoo. Sean, you're killing me. You know, I, I, we have a natural tendency to laugh out of nervousness or so as to ingratiate ourselves for the next really tough question or maybe to stop from crying. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the grab the pussy tape. We're almost as bad as the bragging was the cackling of that lick spittle Billy Bush egging on Alpha Don. I just kidding. I could do anything. <laughs> We've all become Billy Bush if we're laughing at Spicer's unemployment number line. A lot of the journalists in that room, journalists, if you will, are very Billy Bush-like. There's Breitbart, there's The Daily Caller, Newsmax, Town Hall, The Blaze, all invited to press briefings these days, welcomed. They're all covering stories like the Obama phone tap, like Billy Bush covered the Ryan Lochte story. You know, you nod acceptingly and you tell the camera guy to press record. I was jacked in a gas station. I was tapped at Trump Tower. There is one difference between those two claims. Lochte had fewer spelling errors. Look, my job is to call elected officials to account. I like finding news that you haven't heard. Like yesterday, we played Missouri Rep. Jason Smith suggesting that Democrats should want to tax the sun. I like analyzing arguments and rhetoric. I love rhetoric and pointing out illogic or sophistry or what's really going on there. I feel I can serve a role by puzzling out the implications of bad policies or, as has been frequently happening, bad implementation of bad policies. But this stuff, like where Trump just gets a a Fox and Friends, Fox and Thangs fact backwards about Gitmo detainees who returned to the battlefield. And now this thing, oh, there's an unemployment stat. Yeah, we're now embracing and endorsing that statistic. Ha ha ha! This is the ditch digging of news analysis. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm better than a ditch digger. I'm not saying I'm Winchester for MASH. I've trained at the finest hospitals. Now I'm sawing bones in a rice paddy in Asia. But it's so nakedly incompetent and ridiculous. It's like my work is done for me. Angry 70-year-old mistakes fact and blames Obama. We now go to news analyst and seasoned journalist Mike Pesca. Why? Why go to me? Why not just go to anyone who's ever had to deal with a grouchy in-law? But I still do think, I still got to believe there is some value in pointing this crap out, in at least saying it's crap, in reminding you, but really reminding myself that we're all better than having to accept this crap from the top public servant in our democracy. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Mary Wilson, who was not put off by the presence of gangrenous feral sheep. Chris Berube also produces The Gist, despite all the transmissible peripatetic caribou in the area. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He'll keep at that job before, during, and after the pack of dyspeptic, testy greyhounds disappears. Andy Bowers is now and forever chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Damn the septic, unmanageable waterfowl. The gist. The rabid, irascible grubs will not listen to reason. I will have to counter with their natural enemy, the sage grouse. Oomperu de peru du peru, and thanks for listening.